This is an ABC podcast. I'm inside a sealed room. It's kind of like a shipping container. The doors shut tight behind me and it's really humid and dark because what's in here thrives at a particular temperature. And what is in here? thousands upon thousands of large black flies and they're mating basically it's a fly sex fest i can't imagine quite what it would feel like if they were <laughs> oh, going around everywhere alfred hitchcock eat ya <laughs> but these black soldier flies don't look like your average blowy they move slowly and they're long and thin they're actually not particularly effective flyers. So instead what they rely on is looking big and scary and wasp-like yeah. so that predators stay away. But back at the beginning of their lives as larvae, they're far from sluggish. They're tiny, voracious eaters. Maggots with a serious case of the munchies, right? And that could be the solution to one of the biggest global environmental problems we are facing. Welcome to Science Friction's summer season of Encore shows from the past year. I'm Natasha Mitchell. And at this time of Christmas feasts, what do you do with all the leftovers? Do you eat them? Do you compost them? Well, you're about to meet an incredible young couple, an architect and a genetic scientist, both in their 20s, who had an even better idea about where what we scrape off our plates should and could end up. It's a radical, ambitious and world-changing idea. On a factory floor in sunshine on Wurundjeri country, here in Melbourne's western suburbs, I've joined Phoebe Gardner and Alex Arnold. They're founders of the startup business called Bardi. We're inspecting this massive pile of fruit and veggie scraps. Lots of cabbage, cucumbers in a big pile. I can see cantaloupes, I can see capsicums, I can see oranges, heaps of cauliflower leaves. Actually, some of this looks really good to eat. Why is it here? Yeah, there is sadly so much food waste out there. It's the way that the food system is structured. You know, farmers needing to overproduce to meet the demands of their supply contracts and sellers and vendors, markets, needing to always have stuff on the shelves, knowing that they'll probably throw some stuff away at the end of the day because no one wants to buy the, the last lettuce on the shelf. So there's usually a few lettuces on the shelf at the end of the day, for instance. It's kind of a travesty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Knowing how much effort goes into producing this food and how much damage it causes when it goes to landfill. How much stuff comes in here every day or every week? Every week we process 50 tonnes or more of food waste, so about 100 times more than the pile you see in front of you. We actually process a number of different food waste streams here, vegetables, fruits, grains, meat and dairy, so anything that we might eat. The only thing we really can't process is things like plastic and tree trunks. What's the weirdest thing you've found in a batch of veggies? We found a radio before. Whole wheelie bins sometimes think people miss the brief. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but what we need to do is take remove that waste so that we can process it into a diet for insects and they're not going to eat the plastic. All right, you've got another batch coming in. The one billion strong maggot army waiting in the wings here for dinner eat a whole lot of things, but plastic is not one of them. 
And humans are possibly even fussier eaters because a third of the world's food we produce gets chucked out, wasted, dumped in landfill. It rots away, spewing methane into the atmosphere, a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. In fact, our whole food system accounts for more than a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And as our population increases, demand for food will too. So Houston, we have a problem. What if you could instead capture all that food waste before it starts decomposing and use it to do useful things with? These were the sorts of questions Alex and Phoebe started thinking about when they got together as a couple at uni. Phoebe was studying architecture and Alex was finishing his science honours degree in genetics and ecology. After being in share houses for a little while, Alex and I were living together and we decided we had to do something about the environment and so we were doing things like switching off our fridge and digging a hole in our rental back garden and putting an esky in there to see if we could reduce our electricity usage. It didn't work at all. <laughs> but we were trying to work out what what was in our power to do about the environment at that point. Let's see, we were trying to grow little crops on pallets, you know, changing our diets, of course. It was quite funny. We actually started eating insects then. We started eating snails because the snails were eating our kale. And so we thought, well, we'd put this effort into growing this kale and that means that the snails must have been eating something healthy for the last few days. So then we tried eating the garden snails. What, frying them up with a bit of garlic and kale? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's probably the first time I ate insects. Little did they know that insects were about to take over their lives. So fast forward, and Phoebe is working briefly in Amsterdam as an architect. Alex is visiting, and they start to get more ambitious with their ideas. Beyond their backyard, could they solve a whole city's waste problem? What would happen if you tried to process every bit of waste out of a city from with insects or some in some biological way that already exists in nature? When I finished my genetics degree, I started thinking about how unsustainable you know, agriculture is. My parents have bought a cherry farm and I was doing a bit of farming, so farming was pretty front and centre of my mind. Alex then did a master's degree in agriculture. Which was basically a two-year study in, in how broken the food system was, which is really depressing. I started thinking pretty agnostically about, well, what is the biggest thing I can do uh, what is the biggest, most beneficial change that can happen to agriculture? And I started looking at all sorts of different you know, aquaponics, hydroponics, algae, seaweed, kangaroo farming. And then another idea occurred to him. He'd been breeding and studying flies in his science degree. What if they were part of the solution? You know, we've got all of this food waste going to landfill. Why can't it just be fed to insects? Insects being like such an underutilised you know, group of animals, like what we use, honeybees and silkworms, like they're about the only domesticated insect species, and yet insects occupy most of the diversity of biology. So there's got to be some species in there that are really efficient to domesticate. So thought that insects had to be a, a really good shot at being able to process food waste and turn it into really good proteins and fats and, and fertiliser. He started researching black soldier flies and they were attracting attention because they're a rainforest species that aren't a pest fly, they don't bug us, and they don't carry diseases. They pretty much just put all of their 
eggs in one basket and that is just producing eggs you know lay 600 to a thousand eggs each with a two-day gestation period and then they hatch two days later and they're, they're just incredibly quick at breeding and eating and growing crazy quick so we've entered a, a dark quiet space we've come off the very noisy production floor into quite a different world this is the world of the larvae and this is where our neonates grow into larvae and grow 3,000 fold in size in just seven days so that's from the size of a grain of sand to the size of a jelly bean in a week and they're essentially having a week-long feeding frenzy. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the funny things about this larvae is that they often eat in packs. But within those seven days, they will have processed 100% of the food waste substrate that they started with. And this army of hungry baby flies, specially bred by the team at Bardi, are already getting fed by some hefty clients. Large waste logistics companies, shopping centres, supermarkets, food manufacturers have all signed on to supply their food waste. And recently so has Trader House, which run a number of high-end restaurants in Melbourne. Anna Augustine is its project manager. When we first heard about it, it was almost unbelievable. It felt like science fiction. But the further we drilled down and the more we learned about the process, the more the whole thing just made sense. Hey, I'm James. I'm a, one of the sous chefs here at Kimless. What's on the menu? We're going to have a little canapé menu that'll start off with a couple of small uh, vegetarian snacks and sort of build into the bigger things. And then we also have a function that's getting a little bit of our Kimless ink lamb shoulder and the steak as well. Growing up in an in a Asian household, there was very little wastage, cold rice the next morning, reheats for dinner, stuff like that. It's just what we did. We, we didn't have anything to put it in, and then whatever we did went into my granddad's compost heap. The way I look at it is we, we invest so many resources and hours and, and everything to, to source the very best products. Those products aren't going to be there if we keep doing what we do. Um, so it, it really is the bigger picture. By keeping the wider world, the planet healthy, yeah. so it can keep providing us with the food that it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, big time. So really like, you know, like we don't want to have a generation that's never eaten seafood before, you know, like. So for me, I think like it, it's about maximising what comes in utilising as much as we can from that one, one ingredient and then making sure that it's in life once we've utilised it to our best ability, goes on to fuel or feed something or why should it go to landfill? That should be the very, very last place it ends up. So what do you think of this whole project to take what you feed people and what's left over from that process, take that and then feed it to a whole stack of fly larvae who then turn it into something else? I think it's honestly like the most fascinating thing I've come across in my whole time cooking and it, it honestly like genuinely brings a smile to my face of, of being able to say confidently that there's a second, fourth or third or however many life cycles to this product and, and now it's going to go into something that could potentially be used as fertiliser for the vegetables that we, we receive here at the restaurant um, and then that just really brings that closed loop mentality to a food cycle, like really actually puts it into perspective and from start to finish. I better let you get back to the kitchen pretty quick, Smart, thanks for making time. Thank you very much. James Grant there, a sous chef at Cumulus Restaurant in the heart of Melbourne.
on Science Friction Summer on RN. Natasha Mitchell back in sunshine now with Phoebe Gardner at the Bardi factory, which is called Moonbase by this young growing team of staff. And here, the black soldier fly larvae are as happy as Chef James Grant. And they're, pay they're paid well in an endless supply of food. <laughs> no complaints from your maggot workers. <laughs> no complaints. The insect will always keep you humble and keep you honest. We know really quickly when we do things that won't work and we're always working fundamentally with the biology of the insect itself. And I think any farmer who's working with animals would feel the same way, that it comes down to the fundamentals of the biology. A lot has gone into making sure the larvae workers here are getting just what they need to grow at just the right rate. Everything here, from the genetics of the flies to the software, machines, processes, all of it, has been developed from scratch over the last two years, and much of it they've invented in-house themselves. It's incredible to think that just a decade ago, Phoebe was graduating from high school and Alex from his science degree. So from a good idea to making it happen, they've moved really fast. Well, I think the first thing we did was start to step backwards from the big vision of, OK, if the vision is to process a whole city's food waste, what has to be true in order for that to become real? And the very first thing that had to be true was that we could breed this insect in an artificial environment and could have some certainty at any time over how many insects we needed. And why that's so important is once we started to accept food waste or pick food waste up from restaurants or accept it from waste logistics companies, we needed to know that we were actually going to have insects to combine it with to process it. Otherwise, we'd be no better than a landfill. So they built their first little lab by hand with the help of their families. It was basically a white box in a car park of the University of Melbourne's horticultural campus at Burnley. We had the insects in there and we would receive two to four tonnes of food waste tipped by a rubbish truck into the staff car park. Alex and I and our small team at that point would spend nights and weekends processing that food waste through a wood chipper and then we had a call from a waste logistics company that said hey hey would it be okay if we include some fish in your run next week and I was like oh, I'll get back to you we'll think about it and we'll run some small scale tests in our little lab and then about 10 or 15 minutes later their truck arrives with almost four tons of salmon and tuna heads and these are enormous they were so big in fact that they couldn't fit into this wood chipper hopper and so we were standing there with this pile knowing that if we didn't clear it we'd get probably kicked out of our little test lab at the university and I think it was Alex that suggested I'm off to get axes. Yeah it's uh the day started smelling all right it smelled <laughs> like sushi a few hours later it starts to smell more like a fish market. Yeah tuna heads and squids so if you put a squid ink sack through a wood chipper it's pretty explosive. Oh, no. <laughs> and get this they bought their first batch of fly larvae over gum tree and it was sent to them in the mail. It was very early days in the industry. There, there's not like a guidebook out there to tell you how to breed these insects in artificial conditions. We had to figure it all out for ourselves, how to do it at a, at a way that made sense. One that's, you know, scalable and repeatable. How hard was that? 
Oh, like, yeah, really, really hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> naivety was a um, blessing because I just didn't know how hard it would be. You know, we were doing all of that, that physical work in this, this tiny room. The whole thing was tropical conditions. We were doing it late at night, you know, 4 a.m. We're still ladling food waste out into little tubs for the larvae to eat. And we're just recording all of this data, working super quickly with our experiments. You know, we've got a, a very good science culture here where we focus so much on just smashing out experiments just to the point where you know we can make a decision as fast as we can and it's just it's a huge difference from um, academic science and it's something that we've really focused on developing is this culture of being able to just generate knowledge to be able to improve the way that we're doing things there's a huge amount of intellectual property that we've produced here Alex's mission is to use his science skills to change the world fast, not have his research locked away in journals on dusty shelves. Back at the start, they gave themselves two months, then six months to test out their idea, borrowed money from family to pay rent. But things really started moving when they were awarded 20 grand by their university's Melbourne Accelerator program. They built their little car park lab with that, got access to great mentors, and by the end of that program, they'd raised their first million dollars in venture capital and attracted two key angel investors. Oh, there they are. Ah, right. These look more like maggots now, don't they? Little wriggly, wormy little creatures. These are just two and a half days old. So they've gone from undetectable, where you couldn't see them before at the manufacturing line, now to very much visible, and we know they're there. Now, three years on, their first factory is up and running and their flies are meeting all their key performance indicators, eating, growing and excreting. And this is where things get even more exciting. What they do with all the larvae next. At the end, they're washed and pasteurised and turned into a 60% protein meal that looks a bit like a flour, really. And it also means that that food waste that otherwise would be sitting, rotting in landfill, emitting methane, is completely processed and back on shelves in just over a week. So it's bye-bye full and fat fly larvae. And hello, fertiliser, that's made from the larvae's frass or poo and their exoskeletons. And the protein meal made from the washed and pasteurised larvae bodies are turned into fish food and protein-dense pet food. It was a bit of a menagerie growing up, so, you know, there'll be dogs everywhere, horses everywhere, cows everywhere, chickens, just, you know, everything was, all animals were, were our best friends. All creatures great and small, literally. <laughs> 100%. Steph Stuber is a vet who grew up on a beef farm. And it would always be, you know, make sure all the animals have been fed and checked and looked after before we were then allowed to be fed and checked and looked after at night. So animals would come first. As a vet, Steph often felt like she was mopping up after the impacts of one environmental crisis after another, treating wildlife entangled in plastic or stuck in oil slicks or heat stressed or hit by cars. And she wanted to find a way to connect the health of the environment with her desire to care for animals. So she started a sustainable pet product business called Anipel. The carbon footprint of what our dogs eat 
is huge. So she started experimenting. So I would get home, I'd, suddenly my, my husband would find me getting de- buying dehydrators and then coming home with a whole lot of different ingredients and making turtle-shaped dog treats so that the dog treats could then support threatened species of turtles. And then she discovered insect protein. Black soldier fly larvae does have a bit of a distinct smell when it's cooking and that's when he'll pop his head out in the kitchen and just be like, what's going on here? Um, But always just laughs and smiles and just lets me carry on my crazy experiments. She sensed she was onto a winner when she came up with high-protein insect snacks for dogs. There's a growing market for insect protein-based pet foods, especially overseas, and for good reason. Insect protein is a powerhouse for environmental change in that its insects are 12 to 25 times more efficient in converting their feed to a kilo of protein versus cattle. The insect growers use 2% of the land and 4% of water to create a kilo of protein compared to beef. Bardi actually uses no extra input of water to create their protein. It's just the water from the food waste. So it's um, a lot more sustainable. But what did dogs think of black soldier fly larvae? Dogs naturally like insects. It's really highly digestible, 50% protein. It's full of a whole lot of other great minerals like potassium, calcium, and it's omega-3 and omega-6 rich. So it's essentially an incredibly nutrient-dense ingredient, but it's also helping with a lot of allergies for pets, which the incidence we're seeing increasing enormously. In the Western culture, we kind of removed ourselves from from insect protein but we are beginning to re-educate ourselves about the logic of that protein the nutritional advantage it can provide and the environmental advantage Steph Stuber is now one of a number of pet food manufacturers using Bardi's insect protein Bardi say that for every ton of insect protein they produce 100 tons of CO2 emissions are offset So, at the end of their week of consumption, what's left? Well, what we're standing in front of right now is their castings and exoskeletons. And this is what is used as our fertiliser. Tons of it each week, organic certified, and they've worked hard to achieve a consistent quality from batch to batch. It's being snapped up by fruit and veg farmers, native flower growers and garden shops. Conventional, you know, modern farming uh, is a very linear process where fossil fuels are used to produce uh, fertilisers combined with mining to get the phosphate rock. You know, it's shipped globally. So the phosphate is used to make the fertilisers. It's, it's a mining process, so it's by definition it's finite. And most of the time when this phosphorus is mined out of places like Morocco, sent to Australia, most of it ends up not getting absorbed by the plants anyway, ends up as runoff polluting our waterways. And it's just a very wasteful process. And once it goes into the waterways, it's so dilute. You know, after it's caused all the pollution and algal blooms, it's, it's so dilute that you can't really recover it. So this is an, a beautiful example of how a circular economy can work, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, because 
these nutrients that we're able to repurpose from food waste will come back to us again. It truly is circular because the food waste can come in from a market and be turned back into fertilizer seven days later and go back onto the same farmer's crop and we'll get that food waste back again. This dynamic duo are not stopping here and neither are the black soldier flies. Doing what we're doing just at this scale at 50 tonnes a week just isn't enough. We're processing 0.02% of Melbourne's food waste. There's so much more work for us to do. So what we're looking to next is to build a much larger facility in Victoria that can process 300 tonnes of food waste per day. And we believe that that scale of facility will be a great scale to replicate in every city across Australia and hopefully overseas one day. So the idea is to go global? Yeah, well, we've designed the technology to do exactly that. Um, there's no reason why this couldn't be set up anywhere else in the world. This decade and the next couple are the most impactful decades that humanity will have to, to solve so many environmental issues. The black soldier fly looks like it can solve so many of them. Incredible, hey? And they're working with CSIRO now to get their human grade fly larvae products approved too. Dinner anyone? Here we go. So it's sort of brown and about an inch long and I can see the sort of structure of its abdomen there. Okay. I'm going to chew. It's sort of chewy. It's kind of like cardboard really. Something to season your silly season feasts with this summer perhaps. Whoa. A bit of extra protein I dare you. Science Friction is produced by me, Natasha Mitchell, and Lisa Needham. You can find me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell. And if you love what you hear, tell your friends about the Science Friction podcast. Dig into our archive. Lots of awesome uh, summer road trip listening for you there. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.